0: This episode of Engineering Matters.
1: So it was really uh, an achievement in terms of engineering. Uh, he was at the height of his glory in
2: 1889, showed people around,
3: he was internationally famous. He, he was he was, a, he was a genius and, and the, the methods that he started were developed across many, many decades and when we now still use wind tunnels uh, to this day to design most of our towers.
2: There was a serious discussion about whether to take it down.
3: Uh, it was decided by a
2: very narrow vote. Uh, to keep it, but it was really still in jeopardy until the era of radio.
0: Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And in this episode, we're taking a trip to Paris to 1884, where a famous and successful engineer called Gustave Eiffel was proposing that a new 300-metre-tall tower should become the centrepiece to the World Fair of 1889. France had become adept at hosting these expositions, holding its first on the Champs-Élysées in 1855. Exhibitors came from all over the world to participate in the enormous international trade fair, Paris even introduced an art exhibition at the heart of the fair, which had traditionally focused on industrial activity. More world fairs followed in 1867 and 1878, each bigger and more impressive than the one that came before it. So the World Fair of 1889 would have to do something very special if it was to outperform its ancestors. The answer, proposed Eiffel, was to build the world's tallest structure a dazzling demonstration of France's industrial power which would not only form a platform from which visitors could see the whole of Paris but would be a feat of engineering never accomplished before.
2: People were getting very interested in designing tall towers at the beginning of the 1880s.
0: This is architectural historian Professor Andrew Saint, a member of the UK's Institution of Structural Engineers History Study Group.
2: And also in the air was to have another of these big exhibitions at which Paris got to be so uh, good in the 1850s and 60s and 70s, they had them more regularly than the British did. And in 1884, they decided they'd have another of these exhibitions in 1889. And that was the point at which Nouguier and Cochlin uh, went away and designed the first draft of the tower.
0: Émile Nouguier and Maurice Cochlin were civil engineers working for Eiffel's engineering company.
2: And when they took it to Eiffel, he said, no, this won't do. I I don't really agree with it. Uh, It's too crude and it won't do in Paris.
0: Their original proposal was for a quite simple metal pylon standing on four latticework legs, which joined with metal struts at regular intervals converging at the apex. And it was made of wrought iron rather than steel that we see tall towers made from today.
2: People now talk a lot about steel structures, and they're just coming in at that point, but they were experimental to a large degree, and steel was expensive. Wrought iron was tried and tested.
0: But despite his confidence and experience working with wrought iron, Eiffel was less convinced about the initial design for the tower. Its stark, open, almost ladder-like form needed to be much grander if it were to become the pinnacle of the World Fair.
2: So they went. Then went to this man called Sylvester who was a freelance architect who worked quite often with the Eiffel team. And uh, what Silvestre did, he put the arches in at the bottom and he put some decoration in. And when that, and then that was incorporated in design. And when Nguyen and Kirschlin took it back to Eiffel, he said, "That will go."
0: Eiffel would know. He was someone who really understood structures and constructability.
2: I think an important thing to understand is he was what in France they call an ingénieur constructeur. An engineer and a builder. The firm was a can-do constructing firm. It wasn't just uh, a design studio or anything of that kind producing designs for other people to build. They built uh, their own designs um, and it had many uh, sides to it, of which the um, Design Bureau, the Bureau de Design and so forth, was just one. Uh, and um, Eiffel was at least as important for his methods and organisation of construction at the tower too, as he was for design. Not only that, he was very good at working out the finance, and the tower would not have happened had he not been able to convince the authorities he could build it in time and for a reasonable budget.
0: This political support was crucial, as there was actually a lot of resistance to the tower, despite its potential to put France ahead of the rest of the world when it came to tall structures.
1: It was about the double of the highest monument in the world, which was at the time the, the Washington Monument, which was uh, 169 metres.
0: This is Bertrand Lemoyne. He's an engineer, architect and historian who's written more than 40 books about 18th and 19th century architecture, including the Eiffel Tower.
1: Oh, I love this building. I love the tower because uh, I've been there many, many times. How many? I don't know, maybe a hundred times, maybe something like that.
0: He explains the thinking behind building the tower.
1: It was really uh, an achievement in terms of engineering and, of course, a way... A very evident way to show to the world uh, the capacity of France to build uh, such a structure, to be uh, using uh, up-to-date uh, technologies and of course a, a kind of demonstration, political demonstration of, uh, of the, uh, not only of the know-how but also the industrial power that France had uh, recovered at the time already. So it was really a kind of a statement.
0: But not everyone liked the statement that it was making.
1: And there were some protests, local protests from people living uh, just nearby, but also more um, important protest, maybe from the, the top of the artistic intelligentsia of the town in France.
0: These artists launched a campaign against the Tower, which they predicted would become the dishonour of Paris, casting an odious iron shadow over the city. Among the insults were names such as the belfry skeleton, the skinny pyramid of iron ladders, and a hideous pylon of iron bars. And the protesters were all very well-known men of influence.
1: Maupassant, the writer, Gounod, the musician, Charles Garnier, the architect of the Paris uh, Opera.
0: Fundamentally, the artistic community believed that the tower was a contradiction to the landscape of Paris. And in this, they were right. Paris had developed horizontally and structures tended to be made from light-coloured stone, earning it the moniker The White City. The industrial iron tower was at odds with this homogeneity, but Eiffel maintained that his tower did not claim to be a work of art. It was a work of engineering, which had its own beauty in its strength and durability. But some people would never be convinced.
1: Montpassant, a famous writer, uh, would say, uh, I like to go to the Eiffel Tower because it's the only place where I cannot see it.
0: But Eiffel's tower had won over the most important person of all, the Minister of Trade, Edward Lockroy, And in January 1887, the government signed off on the contract, which significantly required Eiffel to use only French labour, materials and technology. And this was a clause that would come back to haunt the project a few months later. With the contract signed, construction needed to get underway fast, Eiffel was facing an array of challenges, from the need for new construction methods and working at height to the immovable deadline of the Paris World Fair, which would open on Monday the 6th of May 1889. He began, as all structures do, with the foundations.
2: The ground conditions were variable, so he conducted a thorough site investigation.
0: This is structural engineer Paul Bell, also a member of the IStructE History Study Group. Paul explains that the legs closest to the river Seine presented the biggest challenge because the ground consisted of poor quality alluvium or loose sediment that couldn't form a basis for the legs. Beneath this was about three and a half meters of firmer sand and gravel before reaching clay layers underneath. The answer was to replace the alluvium with concrete. Because the footings were deeper than the river level, caissons were used to create the foundations.
2: Caissons are heavy open metal boxes with sharp edges at the bottom that sink into the ground under their weight.
0: These were then filled with concrete after they'd been sunk and for the caissons on the two legs next to the river, compressed air had to be used in order to keep the water out. This was a technique that Eiffel had become familiar with in his experience as a railway bridge engineer. This is Andrew Saint again.
2: He really made his name as a railway engineer and a lot of the techniques used in the Eiffel Tower come from the railway industry. Uh, there were a whole series of bridges, of which the, f- the first famous one is a, a bridge called the Ponte Maria Pia in Porto, which was designed mostly by a chap who worked for him in that time called Teofil Seri. Uh, and uh, that was the first great bridge with an arch tapering from um, down to the base where the arch met the, the, um, the, the foundations and the piers of the bridge. Beautiful thing. And that kind of design went on with with Eiffel into other railway bridges. The most famous one is one called the Pont Garabie in the remote in rural France, which is perhaps his second best-known uh, monument, but it's quite difficult to go and see because it's miles off the beaten track in, in La France Profonde, as they call it.
0: Andrew explains how the legs rose from the concrete.
2: Four legs of the tower basically sit upon concrete pads, but the two closest to the river of course that was a little bit marshy. were piled very deeply uh, and then on top of those pads you have these massive masonry blocks, kind of great blocks of stone which sit at an angle and in those angles you have uh, a cavity for a great iron shoe through which they put enormous bolts to tie the bottom of the legs to the, the stone structure and hence underneath to the um, concrete substructure and where necessary the piles.
0: By June, Eiffel had completed the foundations, and on each of the four legs, he installed a system of temporary hydraulic jacks, so that the legs were effectively adjustable, and Eiffel could be certain that the entire tower was perfectly level by the time it reached the critical first platform, at a height of around 58 metres. Construction itself was a formidable and impressive undertaking, and could be considered the world's first design-for-manufacture-and-assembly construction project for every single one of the 18,000 components that were needed to build the tower were manufactured in the workshop at the Le Valois-Pere factory. A team of 40 engineers and draftsmen prepared 3,600 detailed drawings and Eiffel established an impressive production line which culminated in -in just-in-time delivery of three to four metre long iron segments by horse and cart and teams of four workmen connected the pieces with heated rivets which contracted upon cooling, ensuring the integrity of every single connection. The speed of erection was incredible, says Bertrand.
1: So uh, very fast erection, 22 months just for the iron part, uh, plus four, four, five months for the, uh, the foundations.
0: Which, with today's modern construction methods and advanced thinking, would probably take even longer.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure. You're right. I'm not sure that today, if 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 we were to rebuild the tower in Paris or elsewhere, even in the UK, uh, I'm not sure we could be so so fast in. the and designing and and building the the tower, uh, such a tower.
0: The question that troubled me most was how the three and four metre iron segments that made up the 7,000-tonne metal frame were hoisted up hundreds of metres into the air.
1: How did they get the the things up? Yeah, by by little steam cranes. Uh, So the crane ascended uh, at the time of the tower uh, was uh, built. uh, Once you had built the structure uh, around the crane, they would raise, would raise the cranes uh, some meters high, higher, and little by little, then the crane would be, uh, of course, at the end, uh, the, cr- the cranes would be just at the top of the tower, and then you had to dismantle the cranes.
0: The spectators that arrived daily to observe the assembly of this monumental structure perhaps did not appreciate that the biggest challenge Eiffel faced on the project was not political opinion, or even the safety of his men who were scaling higher and higher to assemble the tower. It was the wind.
3: Wind is this invisible force of nature that most people actually don't recognise until we get a storm, we get a really bad wind event.
0: This is Ender Ozcan, a wind engineer for consultant RWDI who has worked on the world's tallest buildings.
3: The interesting thing with wind, well, two things. One is that it increases in speed with height. So the taller your structure, the stronger the wind effects. The second interesting thing is the turbulence. Again, we can't see it but wind has natural eddies and turbulent gusts in it. And what happens with most towers that we design is a solid clad structure can be shaken violently by wind and the vortices created by the structure itself.
0: So to avoid this dynamic movement and the effects of that on people, today's tall towers get tested in wind tunnels, but Eiffel did not have this option.
3: The only thing that people knew about wind is that it could destroy bridges. So there's be, there were a number of wrought iron bridges in the 19th century that basically got swept away, so-called swept away by wind. But still, there was just no knowledge about wind effects on structures whatsoever.
0: So Eiffel and his team did their own research.
3: Eiffel was one of the first wind engineers um, that I, I, I believe that our industry had. A couple of things that are really unique to Eiffel Tower Uh, one of it is the fact that it's a truss structure rather than a clad structure so if if they had clad the structure for example to make it look prettier they would have had a significant more wind problems not only the wind load the drag would have gone up but it would have created those vortices that i was just telling you about in the wake which would have shaken that tower so much that people might not have been able to go up it
0: Such wind loading can also lead to other problems, such as fatigue cracking from the sustained impact of the wind forces.
3: So the fact that it's an open truss immediately makes it act like a sieve. Instead of creating large gusts or eddies, it breaks down the wind into really small, tiny gusts, which are not really correlated. So that's, that's one of the key principles.
0: The other key to wind resistance is the shape of the tower.
3: The shape of Eiffel Tower is actually very similar to... Uh, a standard wind profile that we would look at in, a, in an urban area. So wind is slowest at the, at the lower levels, but it gets stronger and, and stronger as, as you go up. And Eiffel tapered his tower such that the wind load at, at higher elevations didn't become bigger.
0: So had the tower been uniform, it would have experienced much higher wind loads. And in fact, Eiffel's fascination with the action of the wind led to major discoveries for buildings of today. He actually used the finished tower as a wind tunnel, dropping shapes from it and measuring the drag or pushing force of wind.
3: What is a drag of a square shape versus a circular shape? I'm looking at a picture of a, a turret at the very top of the tower, which again is quite circular, quite beautiful. But as I look at it, I can see some of the aspects that he's put in there, which actually makes the wind loads a little bit better. So he's got some steel elements on the outside which break up the wind. So it, it, he, was, he, was a, he was a genius and, and the, the methods that he started were developed across many, many decades. And, and we now still use wind tunnels uh, to this day to design most of our towers.
0: Having conquered the challenge of wind, and with construction, or rather assembly, progressing fantastically, Eiffel had another problem to solve, one that we touched on earlier when we talked about the requirement for all materials, labour and equipment on the project to be French.
2: The problem was that the French insisted that the whole the exhibition really should be done by uh, French designers, French contractors and so forth, and their lifts weren't quite up to the level of the Americans. So, so ground to first was OK, they got a French lift company to do that because it was more or less straight within the corners. Uh, the first to the second floor was the problem.
0: The lifts were not just vertiginous, they were on an incline. And this is where the challenge lay.
2: The Otis Company, which had a Paris branch, put in a tender, but they said, we don't want you, you're American.
0: American firm, the Otis Elevator Company, knew that the French were actively seeking local companies to install the lifts. But they also knew that they were the only company with the skills and experience to take on the challenge. They continued to research the solution, which they'd been doing ever since the project was first announced. And then they waited. Meanwhile, the foundations were complete, and the magnificent tower had begun to rise, the construction itself becoming a spectacle for Parisiennes who day after day would watch builders hammering in rivets and scaling new heights in order to connect the iron segments. As spectators watched and time ticked on, still no French company could be found to install these particular lifts. Eventually the World Fair Commission had to relent, Lifts were imperative to the Eiffel Tower experience and no French company could tackle the complex requirement of safe carriage on this curving vertical path. In July 1887 the Otis company were finally awarded the contract to install these lifts which they did but not without difficulty. When the tower was officially opened by Prime Minister Pierre Tirard on the 31st of March 1889 the lifts were not quite ready. But they still had another two months before the World Fair would welcome guests from all over the planet. Just as quickly as the tower went up, Eiffel's reputation began to career downwards.
2: Uh, he was at the height of his glory in 1889, showed people around, he was the internationally famous. had the monument called off for him, which was all over the, famous all over the world. Uh, but then there was a quite quick collapse after that, and it really mainly came because of his involvement in the Panama Canal.
0: How was the Eiffel Tower connected with the Panama Canal? Well, it was also connected with the Statue of Liberty, but for entirely different reasons. Eiffel was a prolific and successful engineer who was responsible for designing the frame which supports the copper panels making up the Statue of Liberty. And his experience here undeniably contributed to the design of the Eiffel Tower. The Panama Canal, however, was a different story.
2: The story of the Panama Canal was that uh, it was really initiated by the same chap who designed who made the, the Suez canal work which was Ferdinand de Lesseps uh, but de Lesseps was getting old when the Panama Canal uh, was uh, uh, came into uh, the idea came along with the Panama Canal and he also uh, it was almost at least twice as difficult as a problem it was uh, in a country which was much less exploited the the local conditions were t- at least as challenging. In Egypt you had the desert, but there wasn't much to get in the way. You didn't have to hack out a path for it. And really it, it, it didn't work out at all well and it was left unfinished by the French. The Americans had to finish it in the early 1900s.
0: The big problem for Lesseps, and all involved, was that the canal construction, which would connect the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans through Panama, had absorbed an enormous amount of money, around $156 million, and yet it was proving just too difficult to complete. Eventually, the Panama Canal Company went bankrupt, much to the horror and devastation of French investors, who called for a thorough investigation.
2: Um Eiffel's contribution came in when they were getting what they thought was towards the end of the project and he was asked to design the locks and he got a very nice contract thank you to design these locks Uh, and they were all built at Nantes, uh, prefabricated locks and then shipped out. Uh, However when the Panama Canal Company collapsed in I think 1892 there were these locks hanging around uh, and people started to look into the accounts and discovered uh, that um, Eiffel had only spent half the money he'd been given on these locks. Exactly what happened to the rest of the money I'm not quite sure uh, but there was uh, some suspicion of corruption and so he was had up with a lot of other people connected with the company and indeed uh, arraigned and put in jail for a week in the conciergerie which I think was pretty tough for a kind of um, uh, a man of his kind.
0: Eiffel was originally sentenced to two years in prison but after just a week he was released upon appeal but this wasn't the end of his suffering. Just as things were looking pretty grim for the creator of the world's tallest structure, another disaster struck.
2: At more or less the same time, one of the Eiffel uh, firm's bridges collapsed. All engineers have to expect some kind of disaster at some point. Uh, and that didn't help at all. Uh, the firm was doing badly in a period of recession. Maybe the Panama Canal business didn't help. Um, and it actually had to be sold so, by the end of the 1890s, Eiffel was back on his own again, actually, uh, as an independent and mostly retired chap.
0: Eiffel then turned his attention to science and investigation, making important progress in the field of aerodynamics. But what about the tower itself? Well, it opened as planned in May 1889 and became the highlight of the exposition, with two million people visiting the tower in its first year. The original agreement gave Eiffel a 20-year concession period during which he could recoup his considerable investment. He paid around three quarters of the 7.8 million franc construction cost.
2: It had to pay its way, apart from anything else. Um, And in fact, it was very popular to start with
0: but it didn't stay that way.
2: One of the interesting aspects of the history of the Eiffel Tower is that it didn't remain as popular as people think it was. I mean, now it's kind of world-beating attra- attraction, uh, but the original idea was just to put it up for a few years and then pull it down, partly, I think, because there was this nervousness about popular opinion. Uh, and if you look at the visitor numbers, they were very good in 1889, but they then dropped. Uh, quite seriously. They kept the tower until the next big world exhibition in 1900. When it was adapted, there were ideas about doing all sorts of funny things adding to it in 1900, but it was all right. But the the visitors' numbers in 1900 weren't nearly as great as they were in 1889.
0: And that meant less income.
2: But the, The takings were going down the whole time and it was getting a little bit of an embarrassment.
0: The tower's future was looking grim.
2: There was a serious discussion about whether to take it down. Uh, It was decided by a very narrow vote uh, to keep it, but it was really still in jeopardy until the era of radio. And then when wireless came in, it turned out to be a marvellous place for a wireless station.
0: Radio saved the Eiffel Tower.
2: Radio saved, saved the Eiffel Tower, yes.
0: Today the Eiffel Tower is the most visited structure in the world with 7 million visitors per year and it remains an unmistakable emblem of Paris. This year it's 130 years old and during its long life over 300 million people have visited the tower, including me and Bertrand of course. Its legacy has been a new understanding of wind engineering, structural behaviour of tall towers, and appreciation for the careful calculations which went into creating a perfect piece of engineering history. If you look closely at the first floor, you'll see a list of 72 names embossed in gold, commemorating scientists and engineers to whom we owe some of the greatest discoveries of the 19th century in fields such as electromagnetism, hydraulics, chemistry, mechanics and structures. At a time where statues were created of famous war generals or artists, Eiffel chose to shine a light on the intellectuals that contributed to the world that we live in today. And that's my favourite thing about the Eiffel Tower. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media, hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne, edited by John Young, produced by Ross McPherson, fact-checking by Ryan Owen. Rory Harris is the Executive Tower producer special thanks to the institution of structural engineers rwdi bertrand lemoy author of the amazing story of the eiffel tower and jill jones who wrote the brilliant book eiffel's tower which doesn't just talk about the tower but paris in the 1880s and i couldn't put it down we'll be back in two weeks with more if you like this podcast please leave us a comment or review on your podcast app which really helps others to hear about us or simply tell a friend to have a listen Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. Follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters or find us on LinkedIn, talk about us on Reddit or share us on Facebook.